Welcome to the Hills, especially if you're watching online. We're a church with three campuses at North Richland Hills, West Fort Worth, and South Lake. And I'm delighted wherever you are that you are with us. Late breaking news, uh, our minister of evangelism, E.J. Brown, went to South Carolina to visit his father in the hospital. And while there, God is so good, he gave him this rare opportunity. His best friend is a chaplain in the United States Army, stationed 45 miles away at Fort Jackson in Columbia, South Carolina. And he called EJ yesterday and said, could you come help me tomorrow? Help you do what? Well, I've got 200 soldiers that want to be baptized. And so EJ is doing that this morning. And typical EJ, he prayed that their witness would cause many other soldiers to make the same decision. So let's do that right now. Father, thank you for putting EJ in a place where he could serve in such a beautiful way. We thank you for every person on that base who has made this great decision. And we pray the witness of their baptisms will cause many more to think about the journey to Jesus. We pray for our brother and for all in the mighty work of the Spirit that is happening there today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we don't just spend money on gifts at Christmas. We like to spend more money decorating the gifts we've already spent a lot of money on, right? That's why this month Americans will spend about $3 billion on wrapping paper. Just trying to make the gift they've already spent money on look a little nicer. And yet, no matter how much we spend, we don't always get the result we wanted. So I Googled this week, Christmas wrapping fails. And they seem to come in different categories. The first would be just the obvious person who does not know how to wrap a Christmas present. And so it might have been their best effort, but it really didn't come across... Too well, right? The second fail is the category of people that didn't do a good job of concealing what the gift was. You went to all the trouble of wrapping, but they knew before they unwrapped what it was. So, for example, if you're getting a bike for Christmas or a guitar, you kind of knew ahead of time what your gift was, or even a toilet. Now, why did you bother wrapping the toilet? And better question is, have you paid for the counseling you're going to need in January with the person you gave the toilet to? Some fails are just because people are mean. Like this young man apparently did not want to give his sister a Christmas present. And then there are some fails because, frankly, the nature of the gift is such, you just don't know how to wrap it. I think I would have just put a bow on it. And then we all know the frustration is late in the season, and you run out of wrapping paper. So what do you do? Here's some suggestions. Maybe you get a trash sack or a grocery sack, or my personal favorite, go get some tortillas. <laughs> now, it's an expensive way to wrap a big present, but at least it's biodegradable, and you're helping the environment. Well, this month, we're talking about how God wrapped the greatest gift of all. Last week, we talked about the gift being wrapped in promise. But I want you to understand that some think the whole Christmas story is history's greatest wrapping fail. That Christmas is foolishness. And I'm not talking about flying reindeer and elves and big men that come down your chimney at night. They're talking about singing angels and moving stars and virgin births and the whole nonsense of God with us. So what I want us to see today is that Christmas gave birth to a scandalous faith. 
And if you're one of those people that has been taught that all religions are basically the same, I'm going to challenge that assumption today. That Christmas is declaring a faith and a God unlike any other. That Christmas is revealing a God who becomes visible and touchable and nailable and capable of dying. Christmas reveals a God wrapped in scandal. So uh, author John Dixon was giving a lecture at a university on the woundedness of God. And when he was through, he asked if there were any questions. And immediately one man in his mid-30s, a Muslim leader on campus, stood up to try to rebut everything John had said. He said, what you've said is preposterous. To claim that the creator of the universe could be subjected to the forces of his own creation. That God would ever get tired or hungry or thirsty or need to go to the restroom. And he continued as they went back and forth saying, how could the creator of causes ever suffer pain from something lesser than himself that he caused? It's illogical. And John later wrote, I had no knockdown argument, no witty comeback. In the end, I simply thanked him for demonstrating for the audience the radical contrast between the Islamic conception of God and the God described in the Bible. What the Muslim denounces as blasphemy, the Christian holds as precious. God has wounds. What Christmas is declaring is the absolutely scandalous idea that God can be wounded. Now, if the story is true, then all other ideas about God are false. But if it is true, we need to take a moment today and embrace again the wonder of how truly scandalous our faith is. For example, what kind of God puts on flesh? You see, the startling message of Advent is not just that God came our way. It's the way that God came. We're saying that God, the infinite, became finite. The invisible became visible. The eternal one squeezed into time. We're saying that the almighty God, who made everything in a millisecond, became a microscopic cell in the virgin womb of a teenage Jewish girl. The songwriter Michael Card put it well, no fiction is fantastic or wild. A mother made by her own child. Don't get so comfortable with the Christmas story that you miss the mind-boggling wonder of what it is we're saying. That there was a time in history where God had to get his diapers changed. In some ways, I would argue the incarnation is a bigger stumbling block to faith than even the resurrection. There are many things about Jesus hard to believe. Did he really walk on water, feed a thousand with a sack lunch, heal the sick, come back from the dead? Well, the question really is, who was Jesus of Nazareth? If he was God in the flesh, then any of those things is possible. Nabil Qureshi raised Muslim, became a Christian apologist, 
wrote about visiting with a friend named Sahar, and she was making this the typical Muslim objections to the whole notion of God put on flesh. She said, God coming through a birth canal? God having to go to the bathroom? This is beneath the dignity of God. Nabil said, Sahar, if you were going to a very fancy party or ceremony and dressed in your finest clothes, and on the way you saw your daughter drowning in a pool of mud, would you go and save her or stay away so you could keep your precious clothes spotless? I would go and save my daughter, he pushed in. Would you send somebody else to do it or would you go yourself? I would go myself. He said, Sahar, if you would lay aside your dignity to be a mother saving her child, then why couldn't the God of heaven lay aside his majesty to be a father saving his children? And it was that thought that started her on a journey that led her to faith in Jesus. You see, most religions depict God as fixed. God doesn't move. You move. You do this or you don't do that. And here's the rules you keep. And maybe you can reach God. The Christian faith says God is not fixed. God's on the move to reach us. And we couldn't move into his neighborhood, so he moved into ours. Remember, at Christmas, we are not celebrating the start of Jesus. We're celebrating the birth of Jesus. We're celebrating the scandalous idea that there was a time in history where God put on flesh. John starts his gospel this way. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. The Word became human and made His home among us. And all John did there was add scandal on top of scandal. The scandal that God would become flesh and the scandal that He would move into our neighborhood knowing what kind of neighbors we are. What kind of God puts up with sinners? You see, if the original authors of the Christmas story were making the whole thing up about God becoming a man... They did a terrible job of image management. Start with the genealogy of Jesus, his family tree. You talk about a cast of sordid characters and embarrassing situations. You got adulterers, idolaters, swindlers, prostitutes. Why on earth would you put scandals like that in the family tree if you're making this up? Or consider Mary's pregnancy. Why couldn't she get lodging in Bethlehem? You say, well, there was no room. Well, Jewish people in that culture were notorious for receiving strangers, and especially a pregnant woman, and nobody could make a little extra room for her? Is it possible that the news of her pregnancy was scandalous? And we know that all the way into his adulthood, there were insinuations about the way Jesus was born. And then you're going to let shepherds be the first witnesses of the new king? That's scandalous. Shepherds were lowlifes. Shepherd was a job you got if you couldn't get a good job. Their reputation was so bad they couldn't even be witnesses in court. You're going to let stargazers from another country be the first worshipers? That's scandalous. They're idolaters. If you're making up this story, you're not doing a good job. But what if it's true? And what if Christmas is revealing a God who chooses to have mercy on people who are messy? 
Again, John says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God came for the very purpose of reaching sinners. That same verse in the message, God didn't go to all the trouble of sending the Son merely to point out accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help to put the world right again. And so what this means is that Jesus grew and became a man, started a ministry, and he was slandered his whole adult life by one accusation more than any other. If you are a man from heaven, how could you be a friend of sinners? What kind of God puts up with sinners? So, when my children were small, we had a tradition. I called it Christmas light looking night. We'd load up the kids, pick up my brother's family, get all the cousins in the van, and we'd go look at some of the best neighborhoods that had Christmas lights. My daughter Morgan was two or three. I would let her get out of the car seat so she could see better, stand next to me. Don't send me an email. We were rebels. <laughs> and I would point to a house and say, Morgan, look at those lights. And she would say, that my favorite. F-R-A-V-R-I-T, favorite. And I'd point to another house, that my favorite. And then down the street, that my favorite. How could every house be your favorite? She saw no inconsistency. And neither did Jesus. He didn't just put up with sinners. He hung out with sinners. He touched lepers. He let prostitutes touch him. He went to parties with tax collectors. He invited fishermen with anger issues to join his mission. And when each one looked into his face, they saw, you're my favorite. John Strowman says he would go to a rest home to visit an older man who often had a kind of a dour mood, except at Christmas time. He would go to see him, and there would be cards on the wall and a poinsettia by his bed, and carolers from local churches would come by. And he said to John, At Christmas time, I am somebody. And what God was saying by putting on flesh and moving into the neighborhood, you are somebody. Jesus came to sinners. Jesus came for sinners. But Jesus did not become a sinner. He did something even more scandalous. Jesus became sin. Everybody lean in. For the next five minutes, I'm going to preach the gospel. Because there is no other religion that comes close to saying about God what Christmas announces, that he was born to die. Put on flesh, put up with sinners, that's nothing. What about this? What kind of God puts himself on a cross? You see, most people want Christmas. We want gifts and eggnog and carols. We'll even put up with baby Jesus. We just don't want to think deeply about why did he come? He came 
to save us from our sins. And we don't want to deal with that. We don't want to connect the birth to our sins because sin implies moral absolutes and guilt and deserved punishment. Sin suggests we're so bad, somebody had to be good for us. Sin suggests that we can't fix ourselves. We don't like to see ourselves as sinners. We like to see ourselves as mistakers. Mistakers don't need to be saved. They just need to try harder. Mistakers don't need a redeemer. They just need a cheerleader. And most of all, mistakers need other people to just get over it. You know what? I never said I was perfect. I make some mistakes, okay? Why can't you just get over it? And here's the problem. Holy God can't just get over sin. A holy God's perfect and only just response to sin is wrath. Now, I know we don't like that word. We don't like it because we're impure and unholy, and so all our wrath is unholy too. We can't imagine holy wrath. But God is not ashamed of his wrath. Every time in the Bible God's wrath is mentioned, the angels fall down and they worship him. They worship a God who is so pure and so holy that darkness and evil must be destroyed in his presence. And that means God has a problem. Because we have a sin problem. And that creates a problem for God. How can he, in his holiness, not punish sin? And how can he, in his love, not rescue sinners? And God's answer to that problem was scandalous. And it was no last second answer. Second Timothy says, for God saved us and called us to live a holy life. And he did this not because we deserved it, but because this was his plan from before the beginning of time. To show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus our Savior. What Paul is saying is that when Jesus was born, God was trying to make something clear. You can't fix yourself. You can't save yourself. Grace has appeared. Only a sinful man should die for his sins. Only a sinless man could die for the sins of others. And so long ago, God conceived of a way to destroy sin and rescue sinners. God conceived of a way to save men by becoming one. And so Jesus was conceived in a virgin womb. He was born to die. Not for his sins, but for ours. He put himself on a cross so that he could put his righteousness on us. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, Christ had no sin, but God made him become sin so that in Christ we could become right with God. Let's be clear. Jesus did not die as a mistaker. He died as a sinner. And because he was willing to die as a sinner, we don't have to live as sinners. But we can live as the redeemed sons and daughters of God. So, I only made one B in high school. It was in typing. 
class. I'm still bitter. It actually cost me some scholarships. And it's not because I typed poorly. It's because I typed slowly. And I'm about to explain and give an illustration that nobody under 40 is going to understand. You see, I learned to type on a machine called a typewriter. Okay, and you had this machine. It had this keys. And on each key, there was a letter, or maybe it was hieroglyphics. It was a long time ago. But you would push the key, and a metal arm would come up, and it would make an indention through a ink ribbon into paper. And whatever it put into that paper stayed in that paper. So if you hit the wrong key, there was no delete key to fix it. Some of you older remember what we had to do. We had to stop, roll that paper up, get a little bottle of something that we called whiteout or liquid paper, dab it on there, blow on it to make it dry, try to roll it back down, get it lined up again, then hit the right key. And after you did all that and finished your work and pulled up your paper, that glossy white scab was still visible. It was still clear. You messed up. You didn't get it right. Some of us think that what Jesus is offering us is white out. No, he's not, my friend. Jesus was born in Bethlehem to be a delete key. Oh, come on. Somebody get excited. That is good news. The scandalous gospel of grace says that if you are covered in the righteousness of God, you are going to stand before perfect, holy God. And there is no evidence that you ever sinned at all. You are perfect in the eyes of God. He say, how could I be perfect? I know what I've done. I know where I've been. I know what I've done. It's scandalous. You're right. It is scandalous. And it's true. Christmas rebukes the whole notion of self-salvation. Christmas says our salvation is only possible because of a scandalous God. That scandal is not part of the story. Scandal is the point of the story. I, I like to put it this way, that the scandal of redemption is the redemption of scandal. That you cannot send yourself beyond the reach of the scandalous grace of God. And I have a special reason to remember that every Christmas day. So, my mother did not grow up in a Christian home. She never went to church. This is the only picture I think I still have of her parents. That's my papa, Archie, and Orpha Lee, who I called Nanny. Every time I saw him, he had a cigarette in one hand. He had a cuss word on his lips. And he probably had a bottle close by. My papa struggled with alcoholism. I can remember being a boy with him in the truck, and he would pull off the road into a, a house with even no name on it. And he would get out and walk in and come back out with a bottle and a paper bag and put it under the seat and say, let's not tell Nanny where Papa's been. He didn't have the world's best reputation. He was a bit of a scandal. 
the age of 56, he had a stroke. Months earlier, he had heard me preach my first sermon. I went to see him. He said, when I leave this hospital, I'm not going home. I'm going to the church building. I want to get baptized. And he did. He never drank again. Never heard him cuss again. Went to church every Sunday. He literally was a changed man. Sadly, years of abuse with alcohol took its toll on his body. He had more strokes, and he died at the age of 62 on Christmas Day. And so every Christmas Day since, I take a moment, I get somewhere just with me and the Lord, and I thank a God who has a heart for scandals. I thank a God who puts up with sinners. I thank a God who sent a son who became human so we could have mercy on the messy. <laughs> My papa met Jesus on Christmas Day. And I think the first thing he heard was, Archie, so glad you're here. You're one of my favorites. <laughs> and Christmas is not history's greatest rapping fail. Christmas is the good news that even though everyone has failed, anyone can be wrapped in the grace of God. And because I think somebody listening to me right now needed to hear that, I want to pray. So God, I'm praying for that person, that person who feels like I have sinned myself past the grace of God. I have sinned myself out of his reach. And I pray in Holy Spirit that you will penetrate through the lies and help them to see exactly what Christmas is declaring. That you put on flesh and you came into the neighborhood and you went to a cross exactly so the messy could find mercy. Help us today to hear the good news like we've never heard it before. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.